You're listening to On Human Rights, where we interview experts from around the world on the latest issues concerning human rights and international humanitarian law. We're broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Today we're speaking to Bashkut Tunjak. Bashkut Tunjak serves as the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and, and Hazardous Substances and Wastes. That work is informally known as the UN Human Rights Council's Mandate on Toxics. Tunjak is a visiting scholar at American University's Washington School of Law in Washington, D.C. He's also an affiliated researcher with the Rao Wallenberg Institute. Bhaskut Tunjak, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me a bit about, before we get into details, how big of a problem toxic pollution is today in the hmm. world? Well, there's a lot of uncertainty about the exact magnitude of the impacts, but what we do know shows that it's... Uh, quite possibly, very likely, the leading cause of premature preventable death in the world. So WHO estimates that it's almost 13 million people per year who die prematurely from um, diseases that are linked to an unhealthy environment, so to speak. Human rights and toxics, how did you get into this work? I can't say it was something that, you know, when I... When I went to school, I, I, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. Um, I, I think it was something that sort of flowed naturally. I started working with a, a small organization working on international environmental law. I was working on issues related to intellectual property and then started working on chemicals and then somehow that turned into chemicals and, and human rights. And um, slowly over the years, it's actually yeah, become pretty much my focus, the focus of my work. And so uh, your position, I, I don't think many people are aware of it. Of course, most people aren't aware of the inner workings of the UN, but um, can you describe a, a bit uh, of the work that you do? Sure. Um, so the UN human rights system has created these positions called either special rapporteurs or working groups or independent experts uh, to provide reports and, and some investigative capacity to the human rights system on specific issues. So there are special rapporteurs on water and sanitation, on food, on housing, poverty, so on, health. Um, my mandate actually came from the, the mid-90s around the situation of developing countries being the recipients on the receiving end of toxic waste from countries in the global north, so to speak. And uh, it yeah, so I hold a position through the Human Rights Council now that looks at the human rights implications of hazardous substances and wastes. Um, in, in essence, I, I provide reports to the Human Rights Council. I undertake country visits at the invitation of governments. Um, I speak with scientists. I speak with lawyers. I, I work to raise the issue of human exposure to toxic pollution, hazardous substances, pesticides, um, and, and other, other threats as human rights issues. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a three-year appointment that can be re renewed once. So, yeah. You mentioned in the beginning 13 million people, that figure, I mean, yeah. the, the right to live is, is, you know, an obvious human right. Um, right. But is the connection still tough um, for people to conceptualize? 
Yeah, I think in in many respects, uh, it's it's become easier to make that connection, thanks to a lot of the evidence that's being put out by uh, researchers and scientists. But making a, a strong connection between our exposure, everyday exposure, whether it's to air pollution, water pollution, toxic chemicals and products, um, and, and their implications for human rights, it sometimes seems unnatural, even to those that either work in the human rights field or the environmental sphere. So part of my responsibility is to clarify these links, like I was saying before. Um, but you mentioned the right to life, that's uh, you know universally recognized, I would say at this point, but the, the issue is, is not simply about uh, the right to life, although that's certainly one that comes up. It's health, it's water, housing, food, um, and it's also other more procedural rights like the right to information, participation, assembly, association, um, and most importantly in, in the case of many victims is the right to effective remedies for the impacts, which unfortunately is far below where it needs to be. You, you write that some of the most egregious cases of corporate human rights abuses and impunity share the mismanagement of hazardous chemicals mm. as a common denominator. Can you elaborate on, on what you mean? Let's pick up off the idea of access to remedies. Um, I think it was over 30 years ago, maybe something like 33 years ago, that uh, in Bhopal, India, we saw one of the worst chemical disasters in the world. Um, every day, children are being born into an environment that continues to be contaminated uh, due to the failure to provide an effective remedy for that situation. Not just from the gas leak that happened that killed thousands of people, uh, a clearly preventable accident, but also from the incredible amount of, of toxic waste and contamination from other manufacturing activities around that facility, that pesticide facility that resulted in the gas leak. Um, the, the contamination continues to spread, access to, to clean, safe water remains a serious issue, and, and children continue to be born into that environment and suffer health impacts as a result. I think um, other examples exist from from around the world. In Japan, we saw the issue of the the Minamata disease around Shiso Corporation, um, where the company was dumping waste, uh, mercury waste, eventually contaminating fish and then people. Um, but but the system, I think, has enabled a lot of abuse of human rights without accountability, the impossibility to trace uh, particular actors to hold responsible. Um, for many impacts, they come from diffuse sources. Uh, we're exposed to countless substances that we don't know exactly what the health impacts are. So how we go about holding these companies accountable who manufacture and use these substances uh, it remains a serious challenge. And you've said also that the utilization of human rights to drive a toxic-free future is long overdue. Mm -hmm. um, and you've mentioned numerous times that it's a huge, huge problem with you know 
many facets. Um, how do you prioritize? What do you think we should be focusing on right at this moment? Mm. Well, I think we should focus most of our attention on the issues that are most affecting those who have the least resources to protect themselves. Uh, for example, the poor children, um, indigenous peoples who have long suffered from contamination on their lands and territories, the, uh, the elderly who are often forgotten about in the debate on air pollution levels. We often speak of pregnant women and children, but it's also the elderly who are and older persons who are getting um, a lot of the brunt of the air pollution that we're not dealing with. Uh, when, when you look at the, the covenants and conventions that we have on human rights, you see that everyone's entitled to the highest attainable standard of health. Everyone is. But when you look at the laws and regulations that we have, when you look at the guidelines that are provided by WHO, there's a huge gap. So take air pollution, for example. WHO guidelines say air pollution limits for PM particulate matter 2.5 should be at this level. However, EU regulations are significantly above that level, meaning that about 80% of the population is exposed to air pollution levels that exceed the uh, WHO recommendation, but are below the EU levels. So, I mean, to what extent those regulations reflect everyone's right to a healthy environment, everyone's right to the highest attainable standard of health, I mean, calls that into question. So that's why I keep encouraging people to look at the human rights that we have and to use that to set the standards for where our pollution levels, our environmental protections need to be. Hmm. And this may be a first. Uh, we're going to mention Arnold Schwarzenegger in this podcast, <laughs> of all people. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard him talk about this, but um, he he actually said he thinks that we should stop using the term climate change as much and focus more on the term pollution, that the the public can have a stronger emotional connection to pollution. You can see the air. Um, you can, I guess, uh, smell the chemicals. Um What's your, what's your take on, on the interplay between the work being done with climate change and pollution and the best way to get the message across and make change? Well, in, in some ways I share his view. I think um, for the issues that I'm working on, when I, when I talk to people who aren't exactly familiar with the issue of toxic chemicals and what I mean when I say toxic chemicals, it, there's a sort of an initial hurdle to overcome level of um, awareness that needs to be brought. But if I say something like toxic pollution, it, I, I, I don't need to overcome that initial hurdle mm. quite as much. I think fortunately through the efforts of Al Gore and, and other um, strong advocates, celebrities, political leaders, climate change is now something that most people understand is a pressing environmental issue and it's something that, yeah, fortunately we've reached a level of awareness that we can speak to climate change as being a major issue. The one the one thing I would maybe push against uh, 
Mr. Schwarzenegger on is climate change is not simply about pollution. It's also an issue of deforestation. And it's it's about our habits as consumers. It's it's about many, many things. Hmm. And to call it pollution, I mean I think his argument would be stronger if he was talking about my issue. Hmm. Let's just put it that way. So, yeah. You uh you were recently involved in presenting a report on the use of pesticides, uh, warning of catastrophic consequences for the environment and human health. Mm -hmm. um, what's the issue there? Well, one of, one of the arguments, and in fact it was the, the argument that was raised by the pesticide industry when this report by the Special Rapporteur and myself was, was released, is that we need pesticides to feed the world. And there, there may be some, some instances where pesticides for, for food production are necessary. Um, that's based on the view of, of myself and the Special Rapporteur on food, that's the vast majority of instances at present. There is a tremendous amount of pollution and contamination around the world that is resulting from intensive pesticide use. And not only is the, the contamination of, of food and water, soil, air, um, affecting local communities, but it's also affecting consumers. And in many cases, and most profoundly, it's affecting the health of workers. And so in the debate, around whether we need pesticides to feed a growing population, a growing world, it's the health impacts of these pesticides on workers, on communities, on consumers, are often discounted because we, we have a reluctance to question whether, um, whether or not we need pesticides to feed, feed ourselves. And some of the research that we've done has shown that it's actually most of the pesticides and other agrochemicals that are being used um, in contaminating public resources and common goods are simply used for industrial production, not for food production, but industrial production, consumerism. And, and I think, at the very least, that is an area where we can make significant strides in reducing intensive pesticide use. Hmm. You uh, you mentioned uh, in a speech last night that you uh, you would like to see whistleblowing scientists as to be considered as human rights defenders. Um, mm -hmm. I understand you're a chemist. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Why do you, why do you think that? Well, you know, I think it it's something that I've sort of had in the back of my mind, but with recent events, it's really made it more and more apparent that the science and the independence of science from the political process has to be something that's preserved and safeguarded. Um, there's There are cases around the world of, of scientists who are raising concerns about toxic products, toxic chemicals, pollution, contamination, and they, they face reprisals from governments, they face reprisals from companies, their employers. In some cases, the agencies that they work for, they're being cut funding, defunded. It's, um, 
our entire ability to to respect and protect and fulfill human rights that are implicated by these hazardous substances depends on the the integrity of the science in in a way and if if the scientists themselves aren't independent if they they are their results are not credible um, the the system falls apart in a way so I think we've seen great attention being drawn to human rights defenders that are standing up to protect their their resources, their homes from extractive industries, from large-scale dams. Um, and I think more more attention needs to be paid at, uh, to uh, the people with the, the white lab coats or the, the independent scientists, so to speak, who's gathering data from their community of cancer levels because the government isn't doing that or the uh, other authorities aren't doing that. So, hmm. yeah, they, they really need greater awareness of their risk and their... Hmm. Yeah, the sacred role that they play. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you mentioned before the right to assembly and and freedom of speech. How how does that play in here? Hmm. Well, in in many countries where where workers face the most, say, toxic chemical risks in the workplace, there's also a, a corresponding lack of uh, freedom of assembly trade unions are at times banned or strongly discouraged um, or in some cases they're entirely controlled by the companies <laughs> which creates a interesting conflict the um, <clears throat> but the the issue of uh, freedom of expression I think comes comes up in our lives every day I mean it's it's the, the amount of information that we as consumers um, could, could have and could use to, to drive companies to produce better products, safer products, to do production processes in a better fashion, uh, to give us better alternatives for a healthier future, for ourselves, for our children. Um, we, we as consumers hold tremendous power, but our ability to, uh, to exercise that power is often curtailed by confidential business information, trade secrets, and also, quite frankly, this incredible complexity of trying to understand what is in your shampoo or what is in your computer or who... Who extracted the cobalt that went into your cell phone? And like, were, mm. was child labor used in that? I mean, was uh, a com community contaminated? And is the electricity that we're using depriving someone of their um, their home and their traditional lands? I I mean, it's uh, there's a lot of information that that we as consumers should have and demand, and there's a lot of room for for people to, to synthesize this information in a way that, that we can use it in a, a practical manner. We can't all be chemists. We can't all like look into the toxicity of dozens of ingredients on a cosmetic product, for example. Hmm. So, yeah. um, last question. Um, mm -hmm. What would you like your legacy in this position to be uh, when, you've, when you've left? Um, 
I'm not sure. I I think simply if if more people were paying attention to our exposure without consent to toxic chemicals and other hazardous substances as a human rights issue and possibly articulating this in this issue in human rights terms, I would be thrilled just simply with that. I think that's more than I can ask for. Um, it's, uh, I, I think this is the future of, of this issue around toxic chemicals is looking at it from a rights-based perspective. And if I can make a small contribution to expanding the number of people that can see it in that way, very happy. Bashkut Tunjak, thank you very much for taking the time today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You were just listening to Bashkut Tunjak. Bashkut Tunjak serves as the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Hazardous Substances and Wastes, and he's also an affiliated researcher with the Raoul Wallenberg Institute. I hope you enjoyed, and until next time, this was On Human Rights, broadcast from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lewin, Sweden.